Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. In Forbes.com, I read a great piece, No End in Sight, for the COVID-led global supply chain disruption. And the article details about how the supply chain is under massive and volatile stress and how it is going to affect each and every one of us. Garth Friesen wrote the Forbes piece. He covers global markets, economics, and investing. He's the head of rates at I Capital Management, a hedge fund with approximately $4.5 billion in assets under management. He's a former advisor to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Garth, thank you very much for coming on the program. Hi, Roy. Nice to be with you. Well, what's the cause for this multiple sectors, international supply chain disruption? And was there a missed opportunity to head off what we're dealing with now and facing going forward? Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's uh, you know, a tough question because, you know, there isn't one cause that's led to the disruption that we're seeing today. In fact, it, it actually begun a lot of times people think that it started with COVID, but it actually begun uh, during the Trump administration era, when the tariffs were being thrown on uh, Chinese goods, Chinese uh, authorities and policymakers were retaliating. Uh, that created um, increased demand for some goods and decreased demand for others. And that, uh, that caused a, um, an unpredictable shift in ordering um, it for agriculture, for example, or other goods ahead of tariffs. And that was really the beginning of stresses on the supply chain. But it wasn't really until COVID hit that we really saw um, further imbalances with supply and demand really take its toll. So was there, was there an opportunity to head them off? Yeah, yeah, maybe, uh, if you could control COVID, but obviously that, that couldn't happen. Um, so, you know, we've seen, you know, the huge drop in production when manufacturing facilities shut down and then shortly thereafter a significant boost in demand consumer demand from all the fiscal stimulus that happened everywhere in the world yeah and we're heading into the christmas season it's not so easy to restart these uh, production facilities after they've been shut down so right it's, it's very tough yeah, and we're heading into the christmas season when people want to uh, go out and buy what they want for their loved ones and Food and, uh, and energy supplies are going to be uh, depleted as well. So how, across how many sectors, let me ask you this, how, across how many sectors does the supply chain stretch? Oh, the supply chain is very long. You know, just from a, if you think about how many segments are involved in, in its delivery, you know, it stretches from a, you know, a manufacturing plant in Vietnam or China all the way to Central North America. You know, in between... Those two areas, goods travel by truck, they travel by rail, ship, uh, through ports, through inland waterways, with stops in numerous warehouses. You know, a bottleneck in any one of these areas has potential to disrupt the flow of goods. Right now, the most visible uh, concern is with the backlog, backlog at the ports, uh, whereas of a day or two ago, there was more than 70 cargo ships with an estimated 500,000 containers um, on anchor waiting to get unloaded. Um, and it's not just finished goods. The supply chain is critical for all sorts of materials and industrial components used in manufacturing, everything from semiconductors to specialized parts to raw materials and commodities. So it is far-reaching. It affects you know, virtually every sector and every transportation sector as well. You know, you just mentioned shipping containers, and you wrote in your piece in Forbes.com that shipping container woes uh, are the backbone of uh, of the global supply chain problem and the shipping containers are the backbone of of uh, global supply chains they're it yes uh, shipping containers are critical to global trade you know there's an estimated 17 million containers that transport all sorts of materials and finished goods around the world you know, when consumer demand for goods surges um you know during a period like the lockdown um there was initially a shortage of containers to meet demand uh, a lot of the containers that move uh, that moved all the PPE, the personal protective equipment around the globe uh, early in the pandemic were stranded in remote locations. So early on, it, it was hard to find containers, and uh, the result was prices shot up. 
But containers are pretty easy to make, and production ramped up in response uh, to that demand. You know, uh, roughly 80% of the world's containers are made by three companies in China, and their production is up more than 60% this year compared to 2020. So prices are up, uh, but it's mainly now because of the cost of steel is up. Right now, I wouldn't say the problem is with containers uh, per se, and it's not container supply. It's the circulation of containers, which is causing the problem. They're just not moving. Uh, there are empty containers sitting everywhere. Pre-COVID, when supply chains were operating normally, once a container uh, was taken off a ship and unloaded, it was sent somewhere to get filled for export. But because the demand for containers was so high in China, a lot of the containers were just sent back to port um, to go get more stuff from China. The, the cost to ship a container from China to the U.S. West Coast jumped you know, from $2,000 to more than $20,000. So when you get a 10x jump in a price for a particular shipping route, you know, these containers, which are all part of that flow, you know, the cargo ships want to get them uh, back to the area to where they can maximize the revenue. And they're, they're mm-hmm. not going to wait around for empty containers or even full containers. And you mentioned, what, there are 70 container ships. Which, which harbor are they outside? Los Angeles? So between Los Angeles and um, the port of Long Beach. There's over, you know, latest as of a couple of days ago, were 70 containers or container ships waiting to be unloaded. Okay. And, and prior to COVID, how many would there have been? None. Zero. You know, there was very, you know, everything was very organized. And this whole just-in-time system that everybody's grown to love, you know, worked pretty well when mm-hmm. demand and supply was predictable. But it's been anything but predictable in the last couple of years. And, you know, there's a lot of other bottlenecks that are involved. It's not just the ships. Like when yeah. you, when you, when you think about how everything has to flow, um, you know, it's, you know, there's issues with ports, there's issues with trucking, there's issues with rail, there's, there's a shortage of warehouses, you know, it runs pretty deep across a lot of different areas. Garth, can individual links of the supply chain operate solo, or is it a truly interdependent chain? Individual links operate solo, but to make everything work properly and on time, uh, there needs to be effective handovers. You know, the, one way to think of it would be like a four, to, four by 100 relay in track. You know, you can have very fast runners, but if they screw up the handoff with the baton at each leg, they're going to have a slow time. And that's what's happening now. Ships are sailing, for example, but the unload times have lengthened, um, and that's delaying and disrupting normal function. So as, as for relieving uh, the stress, um, you know, all areas have to be addressed. You, you know, the saying a chain is only as strong as its weak and, weakest link, and that applies to supply chains. I'm speaking with Garth. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Garth. Well, what I was going to add was it was a really interesting um, tweet I saw yesterday uh, from Ryan Peterson, and who's the CEO of Flexport, which is a global logistics service company. Uh, and, you know, he put this out on Twitter, um, you know, addressing the very issue of this supply chain and the interconnectedness. You know, what he did is he chartered a boat last week that took him through the port of Long Beach, Uh, which is one of the busiest ports in the U.S. uh, in terms of traffic. Surprisingly, he said there was very little activity at the port itself. And he he said he took a three-hour tour, and in that three hours, he saw less than a dozen containers getting unloaded. Cranes were not operating. There was no hustle and bustle, very little to suggest that the port was working in overdrive to get all the ships unloaded. So the the natural question is why, right? And the answer is you know, from what he's discovered, and Flexport specializes in all this, so he's somebody who really knows this stuff. There's no place to put the containers. The yards are full. You know, they're stacked with containers as high as they will go. Um, So then the next question is, why isn't somebody coming to pick them up? And then that leads to the issue that's going on with with the truckers, a shortage of truckers. Um, And truckers can't return to the port with empty containers, because the way it works, you know, the trucks have a chassis. On that chassis goes a, 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 you know, a full container when it leaves the port, and it comes back with an empty container. But if it can't unload the empty container, it can't take a full container. And so it's just a classic traffic jam. It's just so backed up. Um, and so one of the issues, it, you know, it, it makes matters worse, is some zoning laws are restricted from, you know, with, there's, there's container ports at the port terminals or container yards at the terminals, but these trucking companies all have container yards as well. There's a zoning ordinance in, in Long Beach that re- did not allow 
the containers to be stacked more than too high. And so, you know, with, you know, this information, you know, and with Ryan Peterson's involvement, just yesterday, the mayor of Long Beach announced that they're now changing the ordinance so that you can stack these containers five high instead of two high. So that should begin to move things out of the, allow the, you know, containers to move out of the port, which will allow the trucks to move back in and get things circulated. But, you know, it's, you know, each of these are so inter- interdependent on each other that um, it's definitely not a, you know, a one element issue. Uh, Garth, you talked about truck drivers a moment ago. La- there are labor issues with seafarers, truck drivers, airline workers expressing frustration, something we're going to talk about in detail tomorrow. Industry groups like the International Chamber of Shipping have warned in an open letter to the United Nations of a global transport system collapse if governments fail to return freedom of movement to transport workers and give them vaccine priority at the same time. How significant a component is labor shortage and labor frustration to the supply chain disruption we're experiencing now? Oh, it's real, Roy. Um, And and it's not just with you know, the shipping or the trucking, there's a shortage of workers um, in international ports due to COVID outbreaks. There's a shortage of labor at manufacturing facilities. Um, and, and on this side of the pond, there's a shortage of truck drivers and warehouse workers and even railroad conductors. Um, you know, Target, for example, just announced it's trying to hire 30,000 people over the next month or two to specifically uh, work in their logistics. Um, you know, and, and on Specific topics with relating to shipping, you know, one thing to keep your eye on is the negotiations between the uh, International Longshore and Warehouse Union, the ILWU, uh, and the Pacific Maritime Association. Their contract is set to expire, and, and that union controls the ports in California. Their current contract is set to expire in July of 22, and if negotiations don't go well, a strike is certainly possible, uh, which would you know, be a disaster right now uh, for, the, for the industry. Um, and one of the topics up for discussion is automation, and the union has resisted automation, and automation is one of the things that will help the ports improve their productivity and, you know, similar to other ports uh, around the world. And, you know, though, you know, these would, there would be something that would prevent this from happening in the future. But, yeah, labor is certainly a part of it. Um, you know, and specifically, you, you had mentioned, uh, you know, the, the truck drivers. Uh you know, that industry is very fragmented and, and the truck drivers, the way that the system works, they're, they're paid by the mile. They're not paid an annual salary or, or for waiting. And so when there's a massive traffic jam like the one we're witnessing today, they earn less, a lot less, uh, so much less that a lot of them you know, have left the industry and gone to higher paying jobs. What does all of this do that we've been talking about that you explained to us? What does this do globally to investor confidence? Will investors, where will investors be looking to place their money? Uh, you as a hedge fund CEO, what are you doing? Well, look, this, the supply chain is something that is, um, you know, everybody's watching from an economic perspective right now. And, you know, it does have global macro implications. Um, you know, first, you know, what, what, it, what is it going to do to production? And we're already seeing um, slowdowns in production um, and an increase in prices, you know, another macro variable. And a slowdown in production and GDP and inflation, you know, that's what we commonly call stagflation. And that's, you know, probably the worst outcome for the economy and for markets and for investors to predict with higher prices and lower growth. Uh, the auto industry, for example, um, with its chip shortage, you know, is expecting more than $200 billion in lost sales this year. Um, but as long as demand wow. remains elevated and things like regional COVID outbreaks are happening and you know, elements like the weather, which none of us can control, uh, I don't expect the chaos is going away anytime soon. So from an investment perspective, you know, clearly the uh, players in the logistics industry are doing well, but um, you know, how long it will last is... Um, you know, unknown. Like you look at a company like Maersk, one of the biggest shipping lines, and you know its excess profits, if you want to call it, in the last year or two, or you know, range in the in the billions of dollars. And then on the flip side, you look at a company like Procter and Gamble, who just last week in its earnings announced uh, an additional two billion dollars last year for increased transportation costs. So it's it's filtering into all different types of companies, and you're either on the winning side or on the losing side. And unfortunately. 
um, most companies are on the losing side. So when I repeatedly hear that this situation with the supply chain is uh, short-term and things will be fine again in a couple of months, wishful thinking, right? I believe it's wishful thinking. Yeah, there's a lot that has to be, has to be done. Like you know, one of the one of the um, you know industry experts described it as a big traffic jam on on a highway. And you know, just because even when it begins to move, the front car begins to move, it takes a while for the back car to benefit from that, right? And what we've got is a major traffic jam, and a lot has to take place for uh, improvement. Like shipping, for example, a lot of the ships aren't going to be coming online until 2023. Uh, so there's no real relief coming from additional shipping capacity. Um, and even when they, those, that shipping capacity does come on online, another thing is coming in 2023, which is the IMO 13, which is a new regulation that's requiring ships to, uh, as part of the decarbonization movement, um, to reduce diesel emissions. I tweeted the other day, here's what inflation is. You go to the gas station before you go to the grocery store, and you can't afford to fill up at either location. Simplistic, huh? Professor Eric Cam joins us, a macroeconomics professor at Ryerson University, contributor to this program. How are you, Professor Cam? I'm doing very well, Roy, and it reminds me of my favorite sports quote about my beloved Miami Dolphins, which is, we can't win at home, and we can't win on the road, and we're running out of places to play. <laughs> As a Dallas Cowboys fan, I cannot sympathize with you. But anyway. They're having a good year. Dallas is going to be very good. They're doing better. Yeah, they're doing much better. Look, uh, let me start with this. Canada's six biggest banks have aligned with Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England, and Liberal Party of Canada member, who's also the United Nations Special Envoy on Climate, to announce the banks are shifting their lending away from fossil fuel development to zero emissions industries development. And we're going to be talking with the uh, with John Stackhouse, uh, Senior Vice President of RBC, tomorrow about this. So now we have the Saudis, the Russians, and other OPEC members happy to know that Canada's banks are turning their backs on Canadian energy development. What does that do to inflationary trending in this country? You know what? It's really in line with your previous guest, who I thought was excellent, talking about the supply chain. I mean, you know, economics is complicated, but it's not. And if you want to see where the price of things comes from, you just look at the demand on the part of consumers and the supply on the part of firms. And any time that you choke off one of those two things, or God forbid, both of them, you're going to see prices rise. So when you say what's going on right now in the energy sector and in the fuel sector, it's just going to be met with more and more decreases in the level of supply, believing that anything else other than the price continuing to go up and inefficiencies going up in the sector is really just a leap of faith, Roy. Okay, so if it comes to macroeconomics and the supply chain, where do the two dovetail and where in the heck can we separate them? Can we? You can, no, I don't think you can separate them because, as I said, it's impossible as an economist to deal with demand or supply in a vacuum. You really have to look at them both. This is the, the number one thing we try to get across to our students is that we can't understand prices and price movements until we understand that you have both motivations in the economy. And so, as I said, your worst case scenario is anytime you can noticeably see in the data demand going up and supply going down. Well, let's just take a peek at the data, Roy, for a second. Retail sales were up. 2.1% in the last statistics. Food and beverage and gasoline, clothing and accessories are all way up, leading the drive. And then you also have the CPI, which went up, as you said, highest in 20 years, 4.4% year over year. Some people say that's all gas. Well, let's abstract from the gas, and it still went up 3.5, which is outside of the acceptable boundaries of the Bank of Canada. So what you're seeing now is what happens when demand and supply are unpredictable, but you take one of the two and you tie one arm behind your back and you restrict supply to such an extent that prices have nowhere to go but up. Yeah, I mean, I, and I apologize to our listeners. I said earlier, one of my neighbors, I'm broadcasting from home today. We'll be back in the studio tomorrow. 
But one of my neighbors decided to mow his grass when the show started, and another one of my neighbors has decided it's a good idea to do it right now. So that's what you're hearing in the background. But when we talk about uh, transportation costs, and we talk about fuel, um, transportation index is more than double the national average at 9%. Gasoline prices up 33% in the last year. And as you said, that affects literally everything from pumping gas into your vehicle or diesel into a company truck, and that diesel in that company truck, the cost increase will be passed on to the consumer. And that's what's happening, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, that's all that can happen. On a microeconomic level, you're now seeing prices rise on most, if not all, consumer goods. And that's bad enough. But let's look at the macro economy for a second. There is a holy grail of what you don't want to have happen, which is you do not want to have something called stagflation. You do not want to have a situation where both unemployment are high and inflation is high. But when you look at the data right now, as we tend to be coming out of a recessionary phase motivated by COVID, that's what the data is predicting for us. So you're going to have what we call it, you know, a double whammy. You're going to have prices going up, inflation going up, goods becoming far too expensive for some people to afford. And then as a cherry on top, those people aren't going to be able to get their jobs back that they had before COVID anyway. So I'm actually really glad you had your last guest on because he and Mr. McTagg are also very negative right now. And so I don't want to be the only person saying we are in for a bumpy ride. But you need to do nothing more than look at the Bank of Canada, who who has a holy war, Roy, a holy war on inflation. It says we are not going to let it get above 3%. Guess what? It's above 3%. Well, and shelter is up 4.8%. Food is 3.9%, meat is 9.5%, and those are individual indicators, but they add to the overall picture. Well, that's right, and that's what happens, you know, it's like uh, there's the expression that when bad times hit the, the economy, they hit poor people first. Well, you know what? When prices start to rise in an economy, they hit the goods that we use first. We call those the goods that have the lowest elasticity, things that people have no choice but to buy. And you're watching Economics 101 happen right according to the textbooks right now. The prices are creeping up on the core goods that businesses and firms have to buy every day. And I know people don't like the term trickle down, but now you're watching it trickle down the system heading toward a real stagflationary phase, which is very, very dangerous. So what does this mean to the individual family, the individual Canadian family? who may, as I said earlier, this is my definition, a simplistic definition of inflation. You go to the gas station on the way to the grocery store, and you don't fill up at either place because you can't afford it. Uh, Is that overly simplified? And what what does what's going on now imply? What does it predict for the Canadian family in the next 12 months? It implies that my friend Roy Green was right, when for the last year he has been questioning the people that have said there's these billions and billions and billions of dollars of unspent money people are dying to spend. You and I have both been a little bit skeptical of that, because if that money is there, and if these families do have savings, about the only thing they can do right now to ensure themselves that they're, that they're not going to lose their most prized possessions is to even double down on personal savings. And I know, I know I've been on your show and said things like, well, if we don't spend and if we don't motivate spending and consumption, we're going to be nowhere. Well, you know what? Now you're seeing what happens when things go above the textbook explanations. People are spending. They're spending. They don't even care so much right now. Um, The wealthy people don't care that the prices are where they are. And so spending is being ramped up and prices are going up, and spending is ramped up, and it becomes a vicious circle. So if you are Mr. and Mrs. Canadian, the best thing you can do right now is ensure that you have enough savings to take care of yourself and your family if you have any type of short-term or long-term financial insolvency, which I know is very difficult. Well, and, and you know, we found out just a year or so ago, national polling, 52% of Canadians were within $200 and not being able to pay their monthly bills. That's massive. We have a national debt of a trillion dollars. We have provinces in debt. Municipalities are not allowed to run a deficit, but they're struggling as well. Are governments influencers, Professor Cam, or are they just passengers at this point? No, I think that governments are still influencers. I don't think you can take 
government out of the circular flow model. I think we have to look at the role of firms, the role of consumers, and the role of government. I think we are all very much interdependent. But it is true that a government can only do so much, and the economy is not a physics laboratory. We cannot pull a lever and have the results come through in a matter of minutes. And so you have to look at where you are, you have to look at where the data tells you you're going, and make wise macroeconomic decisions. And now that they are going to be pulling back CERB or whatever they call it, they're really going to have to look at the debt levels of Canadians and say, how are we going to protect our families that are unstable? And I mean food unstable, home unstable, education unstable, because if you don't have food and if you don't have a place to live, how are you going to get your children to school? So right now is the time that governments are going to have to do their job as overseers and protectors of our economy. Let me come back a bit to what you said a few minutes ago and add just a thought to that. Predictions were initially that the inflationary trend may last a few months, but now I'm hearing experts say they're uncertain about that. And some economists are saying this inflationary activity could well last into the second half of next year, 2022, and others are saying you should take the word temporary right out of the picture as far as inflation time frame is concerned. What do you say? I don't know how you can argue this is going to be temporary because people still have to spend, they still have to support their families. Prices are going nowhere but up, but again, they're going up on the goods that we have no choice but to purchase. These are not fancy vacations and yachts. They're going up on gas and they're going up on fruits and vegetables. So I don't know what choice we have but to acknowledge, and I don't like to to correct Tiff Macklin, but I know he used the word transitory. Your last guess was right. There's nothing transitory about what's going on. When you print trillions and trillions of dollars of currency injected into the economy, and then you have supply chains that take supply to all-time low levels, Roy, the only thing that can happen, the only thing that can happen is prolonged inflationary phases. And that's just going to be a reality for a while, like you and I predicted a year ago. We did. What about, um, Professor Cam, the government spending? How does this all factor into where we are now? $300 billion plus deficits, a trillion dollars in national debt, and provinces in debt. Where does that fit into the inflationary picture? It doesn't help it. I mean, when you look at how we add up, how Statistics Canada adds up gross domestic product, how is our country doing? All they do is they measure spending from across all of the actors in the game. And those actors are households who consume, firms who invest, and governments who spend. But believe it or not, consumption is and will always be the number one driver of those things. So while government spending probably looks like it's out of control given the last couple of years, believe it or not, the spending that you see is still considered officially as consumption because those transfer payments have gone to households who have then done their spending. So government spending will is and something we've got to keep our eyes on, Roy, but compared to consumption it is a it is a important but smaller issue. It is household spending that has to be monitored. So people are wondering about their investments. What do I do with my investments? How do I take care of my retirement? What is the inflationary impact on markets, international financial systems, and what would you advise? Well, that's an excellent question because it's really going to the heart of two things. And number one is we know that the Bank of Canada is about to raise rates. And so some people will say to themselves, well, isn't that going to be the control on consumption that we need? And my answer is, well, maybe, but maybe not, because some of those goods have to be purchased no matter what. But to the heart of your question, you're really saying, what is the difference between things that are nominal and things that are real? I mean, the money in your wallet, Roy, is wonderful, but if we don't know the price of the things you're going to purchase, uh, it doesn't really matter. So the short answer to your question is diversify, protect yourself, keep savings, 
And if you are not a person who is uh, up for risky behavior, if you're a risk-averse person by nature, now would be the time to double down on that and make sure that your assets are equally and easily um, liquid and to, can be converted into cash if necessary because we've got to strap up. It's going to be a bumpy ride. What does the Bank of Canada have, if they do, in the way of levers to impact this inflation? The Bank of Canada can raise the interest rate, and it can raise it significantly, so it can bring down spending. I mean, it's not, you know, again, I I, I think sometimes I like poking a hole in the balloon, Roy. The government spends, the Bank of Canada has the interest rate. Those are the controls on the economy. There's two big problems on inflation and unemployment. And there's government spending, taxation, and interest rates. And so there's, there's the, the bowl of soup. And it just depends on how you want to mix it. So here's the question I was hesitant to ask. Now, let me phrase it this way. Some of us remember in the early 1980s, interest rates at 18%. Over to you. Yeah, yeah I remember. Oh, of course, do I remember? I was a teenager. And I've said before, I watched neighbors of my mom and dad put their keys under their front door and walk away from their house when the value of their mortgage became greater than the value of their home. And so if you're asking me for a predictive model, number one, we have got to address the supply chain. We have got to get prices under control because that's the only way we're going to get real values coming to where they have to be to get any type of economic growth, number one. Number two, I would still keep the nominal rate of interest low but positive. Were we wrong to turn away from our fossil fuel energy riches? Well, I think we were. I mean, I think Canada is so rich in its resources. I don't know why we've turned it into a sector that we've become so reliant on the rest of the world, when the rest of the world is becoming a little more closed. America right now, they are proud of their Buy American, Buy American. And this week, um, the Deputy Prime Minister came out and said, you're killing us with that, as opposed to maybe learning from it and becoming a little bit more Mm self-sufficient. If I have this correctly, and I don't have my notes in front of me, but the International Energy Agency has predicted, I think, that by 2060, We'll still be using somewhere, and I could stand to be corrected on this, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million um, barrels of oil daily, globally. Yeah, and I I have to admit, this is not my uh, bailiwick or my area of expertise. I just know that everything I read from my friends who do study these things, they talk about dependency and they talk about self-sufficiency, and we seem to have somehow gotten off the rails and even the things that they, right now that we, we trumpet as our main objectives, we don't seem to be anywhere anywhere close to the numbers that we should be. Yeah. So, as you've said, energy is an area that we have to look at much closer and get back to some sort of equilibrium where we can supply our own needs and, and cater and buy less and less of what we need. Let's talk about what's going on in the nation's capital as we get closer to Parliament sitting again. And uh, he's my friend now. I'm not so sure he thought he was my friend years ago, but he's my friend now. Charlie Angus, NDP member of Parliament, joins us. We spent a lot of time with Charlie over the last year and a half, particularly, and there's a lot to talk about. We are friends, eh, Charlie? We certainly are, Roy, but I sometimes think I should get some co-hosting now with you because you keep calling me on all my Saturdays off and say, get on the show. So here I am on the show because you called. What, what, well, that's the very nice of you. Do you want to be paid? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Good. I, that's I keep the pay- my ethics as a politician. Uh, I'm, I'm very strict on that. Some yeah. may be less so, but not me. Yeah, not everybody is. Uh, there's a lot for us to uh, to get at and talk about. So let me start with this. Mr. Trudeau, much of your constituency is First Nations, correct? Well, in the far north, absolutely. But a lot of the work I've been doing, I've been with Right. First you do a lot of work with First Nations, and your constituency is Tim and James Bay. So Mr. Trudeau's performance, let's call it that, because that would, that's what it was. Mr. Trudeau's performance over the last number of weeks on the issue of dealing fairly and appropriately uh, and in a reconciliatory manner with First Nations, what did you come away with? Well, Roy, um, 
Justin Trudeau's decision to scale on the very first day of uh, truth and reconciliation, the very first commemoration of this, to skip out and go to the beach in Tofino, I think uh, is one of the most shocking things I've ever seen in a politician because it's really damaged the Trudeau brand and this government in a way that was so completely unnecessary. Um, This day is not a holiday. And Indigenous people were really clear they didn't want this to be some kind of like nice symbol. This is about us reflecting on some hard truths. The truth was that part of us supposedly settling this nation was really about the destruction of the Indigenous people by taking their children. That's a heavy thing to deal with. It is kind of, to me, it it has a significance for Indigenous people that Remembrance Day has for people who had family in the war. A day that you, you just show respect for. He went to the beach. That changed everything. And I think for Indigenous communities and the people I've spoken to, not just the hurt, but the rage. Uh, and they're, they're such respectful people, but they just, like, we've had enough of this. So he goes to Kamloops to do this apology um, because he's completely ignored this community where they found all the unmarked bodies, many of them children at this residential school. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how he comes back for that unless he does some very significant actual moves to change the situation for the indigenous communities of this country. And if he's not willing to do that, I, I think this is going to be marked as his legacy. Well, he was asked at the time um, by the chief about the federal government challenging the uh, Human Rights Tribunal's decision that thousands of children and their families who were forced into residential schools should be given restitution, must be given restitution. And the federal government went to the federal court challenging that particular decision by the Human Rights Tribunals. The federal court sided with the Human Rights Tribunals, and in a little bit we'll be talking to Sarah Clark, Ms. Clark uh, of uh, Clark Child and Family Law in Toronto. The firm was co-counsel in the federal court case for the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. So when Mr. Trudeau was asked about uh, about this particular action by the federal government to challenge the Human Rights Tribunal's decisions, he was very noncommittal about whether or not they'd uh, they'd stop the challenge. They, I guess they still have. Well, they do, don't they, Charlie? They have the right to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada now. I don't know if they well, will, right. but they can do it. This government has taken 20 legal actions to try and overturn the Human Rights Tribunal. And it's, this is not actually for the historic residential schools. This is for the kids today right. who have taken from their families in the broken child welfare system. Kids who've died, denial of medical services, and the government was found guilty. And I think this is something Canadians, I think Canadians are starting to understand the gravity of this. A government found guilty of, quote, willful and reckless discrimination against the most vulnerable children in the country. You've got to fix that. Instead, they've gone to the courts 20 times in a row and lost every time. I mean, that's a hell of a lot more recalls than the Ford Pinto ever could have had. Um, and the federal court just slammed the Trudeau government's arguments, argument after argument struck down. And so the clock is ticking. So, Roy, this is what I think where it's all going to hit the road. We've just come off the disaster with him going to Tofino. We've come off his apology in Kamloops, which nobody really buys. And he's got about six days left, six, seven days before they decide whether or not they appeal. And I think if they appeal, it is going to uh, they're going to lose because they've lost every other case, but it's going to send a signal that all the talk about reconciliation and all the very powerful words the prime minister has given. I've been moved. I've seen him speak to residential school survivors. I've been moved. I wanted to believe him, but if, if he goes back to court, uh, it's going to cost us even more money. We have to pay up for this damage. Let's just sit down and negotiate a solution. And they haven't been willing to do that. So this is, again, this is Justin Trudeau's legacy being acted out right before our eyes. And Charlie, they spent millions of taxpayer dollars going to court to fight against restitution. Yeah, the other thing I think the listeners really need to know is that the issue of compensation wasn't on the table initially. It was about the finding of willful and reckless discrimination and needing to fix it. And they saw that report and said, okay, we'll see you in court. They fought every attempt to implement the Human Rights Tribunal decision to the point where the tribunal was so frustrated that 
three years into these legal battles, they threw this slap of maximum compensation on the government because they said they'd never seen behavior like that. At no point did the government ever sit down with Cindy Blackstock, who I think she's, you know, one of the great heroes of our country, in the AFN and say, okay, let's let's figure this out. So they've walked themselves into this multi-billion dollar settlement. And now they're crying poor. They're saying they're the victims. If you read the federal court decision, it throws out every single one of the Liberals' arguments and says, this is not credible. You had the opportunity to do the right thing. You are going to do the right thing, whether you we drag you kicking and screaming. So, you know, I've been saying to the government, we don't need to fight about this. This is all of Canada's responsibility. Stop the court case sit down, figure this out, and then figure out a way that these things never happen again. That's what Canadians want. I don't care what political party you're from. Canadians get it that we got to fix this relationship with Indigenous communities and fix the damage. So before we take a break and I ask you about uh, your challenges of the big tech companies, I'd like your thoughts on this. Carla Qualtro, the federal employment minister, has said that she believes that anyone who loses their job because they're not vaccinated, should not be eligible for employment insurance. To me, that is big-time bullying. Big-time bullying. What do you think? Well, Roman, I, I, I actually asked my staff about this, because we deal with people's EI claims all the time. But the fact is, is if, if you are let go from your job, you are not eligible for EI if you're fired. So... Um, I, I'd advise people to be thinking about this um, because the EI rules are there. I don't think she's bringing something new in. The EI rules really limit how much and how you can obtain EI. So anybody out there thinking of this, um, I'd say really think carefully because EI is a pretty strict provision. So I think she's yeah, but she, but she's saying there. but she's saying if you're fired because you're not vaccinated, you shouldn't get EI. Well, you get EI if you are. Uh, let go um, because they, they can't keep you going. But if, if you get fired from your job, I don't think you're necessarily eligible. So the, I, I'd tell people to think twice. So you have had uh, a history, Charlie, of challenging, particularly Facebook. And uh, when, actually, when I, when I uh, watched recently again, The Great Hack, I thought about you. And you've talked about Facebook over the last numbers of days, particularly What's your concern, and does this transfer, because we have activity going on in Parliament, does this transfer to Parliament, and is that your intent? Yes, Roy. Um, I th- I got on the Facebook issue again because of the uh, Francis Hugan uh, whistle- Facebook whistleblower is just shaking up the United States establishment. Uh, she's uh, she's says she's got the documents that, you know, not only did Facebook know they were spreading wild disinformation, they incentivized it because they were making a lot of money off it. So for the listeners, it's about the algorithms. What you see on Facebook isn't your choice. Facebook creates a world for you. They create the news you see. They create the information you see. And we had an all-party committee with uh, conservative Bob Zimmer, who chaired Nathan Erskine-Smith and the Liberals and me, and we, first time ever, worked across party lines because we realized how important it was to try and give the government a sense of what's at stake here. The issue is not about free speech. It's about the fact that Facebook is making decisions based on money, on what information gets promoted and what doesn't. And what they offer for is often wildly uh, inflammatory uh, and, and, I think, extremist because... They know that angry people stay on online. And so we see these breakdowns of social conversation. Um, Hugan says they knew all about this. They did the study. And the other thing Facebook was studying was the impact of their platforms, particularly Instagram, on young adolescent girls and knew it was having these huge psychological impacts, negative impacts. And yet they're marketing this to children. So you're sort of dealing with a big tobacco that's got more power than big tobacco ever dreamed of. And so we need to get our heads around this. This is a discussion internationally. How do you deal with uh, with tech giants that see themselves as bigger than domestic jurisdictions? Like so how much interest is there, Charlie, in Parliament to to deal with the, with the big tech companies? How much interest cross party lines? Well, you know, um, Roy, in 2018, 2019, I was part of this all commit, all party committee. And I think of all the years I spent in Parliament, it was the one time we all worked together. We all really tried to get ahead on this. And I think for a while, Canadian parliamentarians were way more 
on front on on the big issues and the threats of big tech. But, you know, you give these recommendations to government and they cherry pick them. And I think there's been a lot of naivety in the Trudeau government on this. Uh, their Bill C-10 was certainly a dumpster fire. It started out with a base premise. We say, do you think Facebook should start paying their share into the system? Everyone say, oh, heck yeah. And then they threw in all these other things like user-generated content. They, they couldn't define what they, what they were going to regulate and what they weren't. And it freaked a lot of people out. And I, I, real, I think the government just doesn't understand the file. But we need a way of looking at this. This is why I'm proposing a, an officer of parliament who actually has the technical skills on this. A, you know, a digital rights officer of parliament can study these allegations and report back to the Canadian people. And if there's problems... Isn't, isn't, that uh, a, isn't, the, isn't the heritage minister heading in that direction with his interesting initiative? Well, Stephen Guibault, I don't know. I think he, I think he really blew this file badly. Um, and so we already have a number of laws on the books, for example, like uh, what's his name, Mr. Walid Solomon uh, from the Aaron O'Toole um, election team, just won a huge settlement against an alt-right broadcaster on YouTube who was making wild dis- distortions about him. We have laws. We have laws, for example, we studied P- Pornhub and MindGeek. We have laws uh, going after the dissemination of child pornography and sexual assault videos online. Yet the government refuses to to initiate any investigation, but they say they're going to create a new regulator. Well, mm-hmm. and then we don't know what this regulator is going to do. Like, I think we all agree we need some rules, but I think this government is just sends up the wrong message all the time. There's a better way of doing this. And uh, I, uh, Stephen Guibault, I don't know. It's, the guy is the king of the political dumpster fires in my books. Yes, that's well said. Um, in the two minutes we have left, the Conservative Party and their members of Parliament are being talked about, reported on. And the question is about who's vaccinated and who isn't and whether the a parliamentary committee should be allowed to um, bar anyone who isn't, in this, in this case, members of parliament, who are not vaccinated from appearing physically inside parliament. How do you, as a parliamentarian, for many years feel about that? Well, Roy, we're dealing with the biggest or medical and economic crisis in a century. We're dealing with stuff we never dreamed we'd be dealing with two years before. I encourage my uh, the people in my region to get vaccinated. And I feel as a member of Parliament, I gotta I gotta send a message. Listen, you're safe. Um, there's nothing to be afraid of. But that Delta variant, we gotta stop it. And so I see as a member of Parliament, I have a responsibility to show leadership on this. I can't tell someone else. Sorry, you you know you're going to be denied access to a restaurant if you're not vaccinated. But I can go to work and you can't. I think I think we all got to suck it up, get through this, so that we can get to the other side of this pandemic. And I'm encouraging my conservative colleagues. I know a lot of really good people there. Come on, let's just let's not make this a battle zone. This is not a battle zone. We're going to win on the vast majority of the population now are vaccinated. We're up at 85. We're going to be at 90 percent. I think once we're there, we're going to get through it. It just seems weird that they're battling this out in the Conservative caucus. Let's just get past it. Charlie, I have 30 seconds left. You've been through a lot of parliaments as your time as a member of parliament. What are you expecting this time around? Another minority government, nothing much changes. The dynamics are pretty much the same. Is what we're going to receive pretty much the same as what we have received? Is that your sense? Right. The Canadian people are pretty angry that this election was called and they basically sent back the exact same number of MPs and exact same seats and said get to work. I'd like to see adulthood. I'd like to see leadership. I'd like to see maturity that we can actually agree across party lines on a number of key initiatives and make this parliament work. Maybe okay. I'm just a hopeless idealist but that's what I'd like to see. Uh, it'd be great if we actually saw that. If people were pragmatically going to run the country that would be the best approach. You know, fight each other during the election campaign, live with the consequences, and be pragmatic the rest of the time. Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, representing the small business community in this country. We've talked to Dan many, many times during the pandemic. Uh, Adam Mintz joins us as well. He's a Toronto-area businessman, investor. His business is InvictusGameStation.com. Calm. Dan, how are you? I'm doing fine. Nice to talk to you. Great to talk to you again. Adam, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Roy. 
I want to talk to you about your business in a few minutes, but let's start with Mr. Kelly. What are your thoughts, Dan, first of all, on the federal um, employment minister's suggestions? You know, I have some real worries. Uh, we have I understand as I'm, I'm a fully vaccinated Canadian, have promoted vaccines to everybody I know, but I really worry about the the push that many governments have had towards vaccine passport systems uh, and 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 almost using systems now to punish people who who do not wish to be vaccinated. And I, I think that may be the step too far. Uh, so not only are, is the federal government saying that if a civil servant uh, doesn't get vaccinated, they will be terminated. But now they're saying that anyone who is terminated because they are not vaccinated, if their employer does go down that road, that they wouldn't even qualify for the employment insurance benefits that they've paid into for year after year. Right. As somebody's observed the system for forever, you know, employee, these systems almost always side with employees. If you're not supposed to get EI if you quit, but most people know that if you have a good story as to why you had to quit, you'll get benefits reinstated in about two minutes. So I'm, I'm not sure that this policy that the minister's talking about is actually even ultimately going to be enforced. But I, I worry about the tone that basically we're going to cast you onto some island uh, and, and, and shun you uh, if you choose not to be vaccinated. I think, I think we have to be careful as Canadians. We're creating some divisiveness that I'm not sure is going to go away after COVID. No, there's already enough divisiveness in this country. We don't need to add any more. And, and like you, I have concerns that this is a trial balloon by the federal government, and I have no idea what else they have in mind. But it is concerning. It is, it is. And we've seen this, uh, you know, obviously we've put in place vaccine passport systems for, for, for customers. Uh, there are some governments who have toyed with the idea of doing this for employees in the private sector. I understand the governments in the healthcare sector, that might be a different issue where, you know, where you're dealing with vulnerable patients every single day. But, but to cast you out of the EI system, wow. I, I, personally, I think that this is a lot of bravado. I, I, I feel like a lot of these policies are actually never going to stand up, but they are, they're politically popular right now. The policies poll well, uh, and as a result, the governments are doubling down on them. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on the decision taken by the federal government as far as COVID-related support programs are concerned? And let's specifically look at small business, those affecting the small business community, and the government saying that they will dedicate $7.4 billion to specific initiatives. And I'm, of course, the person, based on experience with the federal government during the pandemic, who looks for the Missouri license plate. Show me. <laughs> well, you're wise to do that, as always, Roy. I, I can tell you uh, we're already hearing from a large number of fairly panicked business owners. Look, I, I sympathize with uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, Krista Freeland. She has a very difficult job to do. These subsidy programs are incredibly costly, and at some point we're going to have to get rid of them. I, I fully subscribe to that. Uh, nobody wants to get rid of subsidies more than me. But I can tell you, the, the big question is, is the economy ready for it? And are small businesses prepared for it? Only 40% of our members, small business owners, have got normal levels of sales at this stage. The government has set up two streams, one program for restaurants and tourism-related businesses. That program provides, um, you have to have a, at least a 40% loss in your revenue to be able to qualify. Uh, and, and so a, a restaurant, for example, whose revenue is down by a third, would get no support whatsoever. If you're down by a third, Roy, that's huge. You are likely losing money every single day you're open, but you're going to get not a nickel from Ottawa. Yeah. Adam Mintz is the owner of Invict InvictusGameStation.com. First, Adam, tell us, please, what your business is about, what you do, and then I'd like your thoughts on what uh, Dan has been talking about, and that is the relative state of the small business community in this country and the state of your business, the health of your business. What do you do? Sure, Roy. Uh, so Invictus Game Station is an esports venue. It's uh, basically a video game lounge where primarily university students and other gamers come to play online video games. We have. Oh, sir. Hello? Oh, go ahead. So we have uh, 80 high end gaming PCs, board game rooms, Mahjong tables, because we cater to a lot of international students. We run weekly tournaments and uh, socials, birthday parties. Uh, and everything in between. We're essentially a new age internet uh, cafe. Okay, so you were doing, as I understand, quite well before the uh, before the pandemic struck, before the businesses were closed, before the lockdown started. 
What happened on day one of the lockdowns to your business? Uh, everything just went away. Um, I think what a lot of people don't understand about small businesses like mine, brick and mortar stores, venues, or retailers is that we don't have a surplus of cash. A lot of businesses, especially ones like mine, which was kind of a startup, operate month to month with the hope that in a few years from now, we really can have this cash reserve that if you know, we have a bad month, we're okay. What happened on day one of the pandemic on March 15th, when we got locked down, everything went away. And I still had thousands of dollars of credit card bills that were going to be due in a month from them. And normally, you know, when the credit card due, bill is due the next month, you make money, you pay it off and so on and so forth. But all of a sudden, there's no revenue coming in and you just go, whoa, how am I going to pay what is owed? How am I going to pay next month's rent? And you're kind of left to answer that question. Okay, what's next? So uh, I've read a little bit about your story and uh, you had to try to stay afloat financially. You just pointed that out. The use of government subsidies, I imagine the subsidies were helpful to you, those that were available to you, but you also had fights with your landlord and you had to dip into your personal reserves and into your credit, did you not? Yes. I mean, I did a number of things. Uh, I refinanced my home. I took out government. I took out the, the SIBA loans immediately. I was very lucky. Um, and yes, the government subsidies were an absolute, they were a, a lifeline for me. Um, but I also dipped into my own personal lines of credit and I took loans that I otherwise would never have taken. And essentially, uh, about a week when, you know, it was March 15th when the lockdown happened. And then two weeks later, my, uh, my landlord goes, where's the rent? And I said, well, a once in a lifetime, once in a generation pandemic is happening. And I'm sorry, but you're going to have to wait until I can get the subsidies. And his response was, give me my money. Not market forces. It was basically him telling me, well, market forces don't apply to me. They only apply to you. We have a contract. We have a lease. Give me my money. And it was a real back and forth between me and him and basically me telling him, listen, this is what you're going to be able to get. I'll, I'll owe you the money in the arrears. But right now, this is all I can do. And it was a very difficult discuss discussion between me and him in a tough time. Dan, you and I had lots of conversations about the kinds of situations that uh, that Adam is faced and may still be facing. This was a this was a common theme across the country. It, it sure was. Look, it is good news that those programs were able to support entrepreneurs like Adam, but but it certainly didn't universally, as he just pointed out, take away all of the pain, all of the costs of COVID from his shoulders. Most business owners are are right now trying to struggle with a mountain of COVID related debt. And it's that that we worry is going to draw them into some form of failure or bankruptcy in as we go forward into the fall and spring of next year. So pulling back on these support programs, understandable. the objective, of course, is understandable as the economy reopens. But, but if we do it too soon, these businesses that have been hanging on for dear life, often by their fingernails, many of them are just not going to make it. And that's not going to certainly not going to help the business owner, but it's it's not going to help society either as we no. need more jobs dry out. No. And we spoke many times of the fact that small business was responsible for 8 million jobs in this country and the number one employment sector. Adam, how close are you? I mean, I don't want to get too personal with you, but how, how close are you to not being able to hold on to your business after everything you've put into it and everything you've experienced over the last 18 or 19 months? So I'm in a very... I, don't know, I guess I don't, I don't like to use the word luck, but part of it is luck. I'm in a pretty good position, all things considered. I mean, this wasn't always the case, but my business, I am building it back. You know, the students are coming back to Ryerson and U of T, which is exactly where my uh, business sits. It's right in between both universities. And we're getting more events. More people are coming in every day. So I would say we're actually close. We're probably six months away from being at pre-pandemic levels. Every month is better than the last month, which is great for me. You know, I've done a lot of things. I've been able to pivot. I have a lot of experience in knowing how to pivot and what I need to do with my business to build it back to where it was to pre-COVID levels. But not everyone's so lucky. You know, I have a very unique business that a lot of people want to come to. And right now, people have been, especially students, have been home for 18 months and they're looking for a respite from being from home, so they want to come to my place to game rather than game alone. They want to be out and be social. 
but not everyone is as lucky as me. So, you know, it's, it all depends on what your business is, but I'm, like I said, I'm actually pretty lucky right now that I'm in a pretty good position moving forward, but it is, it's not going to recover in four months. It's really going to take six to 12 months for me to get back to where I was, I would say. Also, the province of Ontario has decided that uh, limits uh, going into restaurants, bars, bowling alleys, gyms, they're all going to be lifted. Dan, what about that? It's late to the party, but how helpful is that going to be? Oh, it's hugely helpful. Uh, obviously, we I mean, what a dumb question to ask you, right? <laughs> it's, well, not at all, no. It's, a dumb question, Green. No, no, but look, you, you, it is actually an interesting question because as many business owners will point out, capacity restrictions, of course, needed to be lifted in order to have the business get a shot at earning back its customers and, and uh, turning a profit once again. But that is by no means a guarantee that the customers are going to be there. We've had lots of sectors that have had no capacity limits in place but are still not seeing customers come back because people are scared and they're staying at home. And and so it isn't a panacea that people think it is, but it will be helpful. I, I think about poor gym owners in particular who have been yeah, for sure. at such reduced capacity. They've not been able to make a buck in, in forever. It's stunning that they took this long. It really is. And it's been wobbly. The Ontario government has been wobbly. British Columbia, by uh, comparison, has done much better. They sure have. Look, the NDP and BC has, has tried, I think, to keep the economy open far better than, than the Ontario government. Uh, it is good news that Ontario's COVID position is in, in much better shape than most provinces at this moment. But, uh, gosh, the economic damage that came along with it has been huge. I was encouraged, though, Roy, by one thing. And, and look, you know I've been particularly hard on the Ford government for many, many months, and I think deservedly so. But, but I was encouraged. The Ford government is ha- actually now talking about dates that it will remove the passport rules, remove masking rules in the spring of next year. And it's, it's really one of the first times that we've started to hear governments talking about an end point to all COVID restrictions. I know you can't lock that in stone right now. We still have a pandemic that we have to deal with. But the fact that we're at least now starting to talk about that, I think, is, a, is one of those encouraging signs that we shouldn't let go. Yeah, what, what concerns me about that, Dan, is that you could end up with political infighting where you have a federal party of one persuasion in disagreement with a political party of another persuasion provincially and who gets caught in the middle again. It, you're right. It's it's our members, small business owners. And I think when this is all said and done, we're going to look at the damage this has exacted on the private sector economy, small business in particular. And we're really going to have some serious questions about how deep these measures were, whether they were theater, whether they were had a real impact. Uh, we have to do that math at some point, and I'm hoping that'll be soon. Adam Mintz, what about the capacity, uh, the removal of capacity limits in a business, that has to be a great help to you. For everything, uh, for my business, it's everything, because you're you're literally you have uh, politicians and health ministers telling us, um, okay, you're allowed to be open, but you're only allowed to be at fifty percent capacity, and they're not tell, and which means potentially much less than what I'm about to say. Technically, it means okay, we can make fifty percent of the money we were making before, which is not even close to what we were making pre-pandemic. And but they don't ask anyone else to sacrifice. So let me get this straight. We were at 50 percent capacity for months and months and months. Forget the lockdown. How come my landlord wasn't they didn't demand my landlord take 50 percent rent? So explain the logic where I'm I'm not allowed to make as much money as I possibly can just to cover costs. But my landlord is not legally obligated to take less. Only I'm legally obligated to take less. Another brilliant federal government plan. Exactly. I mean, I got, listen, I, I'm not here to, to talk poorly about the politicians because, quite frankly, as Dan Kelly um, talked about a few minutes ago, uh, Minister Friedland did a great job. You know, I think the, from a, for at least my business, I can't speak for all small businesses, I was lucky in a lot of respects. I was able to get every subsidy and loan that the government offered. So it was really helpful. But the issue that I think a lot of small businesses have are when things are so blatantly illogical like the Raptors and Leafs allowed to have 30,000 people side by side, but a yeah. restaurant has to socially distance. 
Yeah. It makes like when it's so blatantly obvious, we kind of shake our heads and say, well, it on. starts to it also takes us to the point of what Carla Quattro said about employment insurance. These are people, the politicians are the people who took not a penny of uh, pay, pain during the pandemic, whereas millions of Canadians and small business operators, owners, suffered dramatically. The politicians kept on receiving their salaries, kept on having their contributions made to their pension plans. They suffered no pain. The private sector suffered a great deal of pain. Uh, Dan, one quick question for you, about uh, 45 seconds for the answer. Supply chain, how much of an issue is that to small business? It is growing fast. Gosh, I looked at some recent data from, from our CFIB member surveys. We do them every month. And issues like uh, inflationary pressures, cost increases, uh, supply chain delays to get products uh, to, to market. This is, this is almost outstripping COVID-related issues. Obviously, those two issues are linked. But those things are starting to tick up as a, as a big concern, as they are for Canadians. They certainly are for Canadian small business owners. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 